The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to bring to our listeners Megan Westgate, who is the executive director of the Non-GMO Project. Megan, welcome. Thank you. Well, I looked at your website and discovered that you've actually been in operation for about five years, haven't you? Yes, we incorporated as a nonprofit in January 2007 and spent a few years developing our standards and our program and really just started our public-facing outreach about a year and a half ago. Okay, well, let's start out by saying what is the Non-GMO Project? The Non-GMO Project is a nonprofit organization that's committed to preserving a non-GMO food supply and giving consumers an informed choice. And the way that we do that is by administering North America's only third-party verification program for non-GMO food and products. And so basically, because the U.S. is one of the only developed countries in the world where GMOs are not labeled and where they are in the majority of our food, North Americans have had a hard time knowing how to avoid GMOs. And so we've decided if the government isn't going to label things that do have GMOs, then we can label the things that don't have GMOs and give consumers an informed choice that way. How did you become interested in this topic? Well, I got involved with the project from a position with the food co-op in Tucson, and we had a lot of shoppers coming in asking for food that was non-GMO and asking how they could tell which products were non-GMO. And through that process, I really saw how confusing it was and how there wasn't a consistent standard and there wasn't third-party verification. And even though some products said non-GMO or GMO-free, those were just self-made claims from the manufacturer, so there was no inspection or testing or third-party looking at any of that. And so I really saw the need for this. And simultaneously, stores in Toronto, Canada, and in Northern California were experiencing the same thing. And so that effort just kind of coalesced, and it was really retailers who started the project and just said, you know what, we need a consistent system and we need standardized labeling so that it's easy for people to opt out of the GMO experiment. Yeah, I really like the way you say that. We probably ought to clarify for our listeners, I'm always interested to know the awareness of GMOs in our food supply. So maybe we should start out by describing what is a GMO? That is a good place to start because there's a lot of confusion and misinformation out there. So a genetically modified organism, it's also referred to as genetic engineering. These are organisms that are created through a gene splicing process. And the key thing is that it allows for combining of DNA between species. So it creates combinations of plant, animal, bacteria, and viral genes that do not occur in nature, cannot occur in traditional crossbreeding. And so basically, biotech companies who are creating these organisms 
want people to think that this is no different than what's been happening for hundreds of years. But in fact, it's very different. It's not possible for a farmer who's doing breeding out in their greenhouse. They cannot cross the natural species barrier and, for example, insert fish genes into a tomato, which was one of the first GMO experiments. So it is a very novel process, and it has not been thoroughly evaluated. So we don't have a good understanding yet of what the long-term impacts are on human health or the environment, but there certainly are some signs that there's cause for concern and that in manipulating this natural species barrier, there are problems that we really don't have the ability to mediate yet. I like to also explain to consumers that there are really two different kinds of GMO food crops out there on the market. One where the seed has been genetically engineered so that the crop can withstand spraying with an herbicide. So at the end of the day, we're applying many more million pounds, over 300 more million pounds of herbicides to our land and agricultural crops since the GMOs were first introduced. And then the other kind of GMO crop is one in which every cell in the plant contains essentially a pesticide. In fact, I understand that some crops are even referred to as pesticides because they do contain a pesticide in every cell, and that would be Bt. Is that how you would also describe that? Yes, and that's a really good point because a lot of people think that GMOs are about feeding the world, that they are somehow going to save us from the climate crisis. And this is because the biotech companies want people to think that they play on people's humanitarian concerns and basically position GMOs as the solution to our every problem, when in reality it's very accurate what you just said, that actually about 80% of all of the GMO crops grown are engineered for herbicide tolerance, and that has led to a 15-fold increase in the use of glyphosate and herbicides like that. And then the other trait, like you said, is the Bt, where there is a registered insecticide that's present in every single cell of the plant. And you've really got to ask yourself, is that something that I want to eat or that I want to feed my children? Mm -hmm. And I've also spoken with individuals, you know, scientists in the field who say that you cannot change one piece of the DNA without influencing other pieces. And this is the kind of the mystery or the experiment that you describe, where we are absolutely being introduced to novel proteins. These products have been basically allowed in our food supply without adequate, and when I say adequate testing, I want to say independent testing, where the companies who profit from the sale of these crops are not the ones testing for safety. It seems crazy, right, that the the company who would benefit from the sale would also be the one saying, yes, we've tested it and it's safe. Yeah, I agree, and you're exactly right that the government has approved these crops based on studies done by the companies who profit from them. And another interesting thing regarding our government's regulation or lack thereof of these crops is that on the one hand, they have deemed that they are substantially equivalent to existing crops, that there's nothing new and different here, and therefore they don't need a thorough safety evaluation. And at the same time that they've said that, that these are substantially equivalent, therefore they're safe, they have also issued patents 
to the biotech companies who've created them. And as everyone knows, you can only patent something if it's really unique and special. So there's a real contradiction there where the biotech industry has won out on both counts. They don't have to have their products thoroughly evaluated for safety, and they're able to profit enormously off of them. And in both cases, the public is really losing out because we haven't had adequate testing done on something that's now in 80% of our packaged food supply, and farmers are having to pay more to use this technology and to do farming in general. So there's a real conflict there, and I think, you know, Given all of that, it's clear why we need nonprofits like the Non-GMO Project to kind of step in and mediate the space and help give consumers the information that they deserve so that they can be safe. I think that's a brilliant observation, by the way, Megan, the fact that they've gone ahead and patented these products as being unique, and yet we're told, oh, no, they're essentially equivalent. That's really something that I think all of us should take inside and think about when we're looking at these foods and approving them. I am concerned about them because, you know, it's very hard to find a smoking gun, isn't it? There's so many interactions in the environment that it's very hard to find the one thing. But one of the arguments that we're told is that, well, you know, these products have been on the market for a while now, and so we don't seem to be having any difficulty from them. And yet, We have seen changes in public health, and it's very difficult to find the cause for those changes, but we have seen market increases in allergies, food allergies, for example. We've seen market increases in autism. We've seen market increases in obesity. And one has to wonder how much our environment plays and what exactly in our environment is playing a role in these increased cases of illness I'm concerned about the herbicides in particular. You mentioned glyphosate, a 15-fold increase in glyphosate use. And I, just for our listeners, that's the active ingredient in Roundup, the herbicide Roundup, which we've been told as consumers is very safe, breaks down quickly in the environment, and yet we're finding that that's actually not the case and that soil microbes are being impacted and the, the microbiological health in the soil impacts the health of the plant and all the animals, including humans, that eat it. So I'm glad you bring this to the fore. There are also recent studies coming out of France showing that glyphosate is actually quite toxic to humans. So all the the people that are working in the fields, working with it directly, are experiencing negative consequences and that's starting to be documented too. Mm -hmm. It's difficult for these studies to be done, isn't it? It's, It's hard for them to be carried forth at research institutions. Do you know anything about why there's so much difficulty in testing these things? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One is that because of the patents on these, the biotech companies actually don't allow individual scientists and researchers to do testing and experiments on their seeds because they have licensing agreements that prevent that, which is obviously an outrageous problem. So basically what that means is that biotech company can say, you know, this crop grown from this seed will increase yields or do this or do that, and they make it illegal for independent researchers to test and evaluate if those claims are true. So that's just at the seed level. And then in terms of looking at the health impacts, et cetera, it is 
a lot of university funding is connected to biotech funding, so there's political complexities there that can make it challenging. And, and certainly the bottom line is just that not enough research has been done. And some of the most useful research that we've seen has come out of Europe um, and other places in the world where there's a little bit more independence in the research system. But like you said also, you know, basically in the United States, we are the population that is being experimented on. We grow about half of the GMOs grown in the whole world are grown in the U.S., and we're really unique, like I said, in that GMOs are in about 80% of packaged food, and they're not labeled. And we are basically the guinea pigs of the world when it comes to this technology. We are the human feeding trial happening live in action, and because there are so many other variables in our environment, it's very difficult to trace what of these new health issues we're seeing may have been caused in part by consumption of GMOs. Mm-hmm. But there are also studies that concern me. You know, I'm 32. My husband and I are getting ready to start a family. So some of these studies they've done on fertility really are striking to me. And there was one study done in Austria a couple of years ago and one in Russia about a year ago. In both cases, I think they used mice in one and hamsters in another. In both cases, they found that by the second or third generation, the animals who were fed GMOs had smaller offspring, fewer offspring, and lower survival rates. And that's the kind of thing that if GMOs have a similar effect on humans and affect fertility in some way, it would be very difficult to gauge that impact and to know to what extent that's happening. But the bottom line is just that this is all so experimental. And if we don't know the answers to those questions, this stuff shouldn't be in our food. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Megan Westgate. She's the executive director of the Non-GMO Project. Megan, I feel for you. When I was your age and having children, really the main concern for my generation was Down syndrome. That was the major birth defect that most women spoke about. And now I see statistics not only on declining fertility rates, and the confounder there is obesity, because I was talking to actually a fertility specialist at a conference, and he said that because we have so much more obesity in the United States, it's very difficult to tease out what exactly is causing the rise in infertility. But I think that when you see increases, for example, in autism, where it's Now, one in 70 boys, one in 100 to one in 110 children total, that's a red flag. You know, sometimes I think we should have sirens going off. And whether or not it has something to do with the genetic manipulation or this increase in herbicide use, and I might add, and you know this, of course, yourself, that One of the things that farmers brought up early on is the fact that, well, you know, there's going to be weed resistance and pest resistance to these crops. So the answer from the biotech industry has been, we'll just add in another resistance trait. So now in addition to spraying Roundup, we're also spraying more toxic chemicals to kill these newly resistant weeds. Yeah, and that is a huge problem, actually, this issue with Roundup tolerance. It's exactly true that, of course, as farmers have sprayed more and more herbicide, weeds have developed a resistance to it. The weeds that are now also herbicide tolerant are, of course, doing very well and spreading quickly. And, you know, it's such a short 
cited solution that basically they're saying we'll just engineer resistance to another herbicide. So what we're seeing now is that farmers are being told to spray multiple rounds of different kinds of ever-increasingly toxic herbicides, and I think it points to a real failure on the part of the technology, and I'm hoping that it will make itself obsolete. It seems that that's the direction it could be going. I think it would take a very long time, but certainly the promises that were made about the potential for GMOs have totally not been realized. It's a it's a failed technology in many ways, but yet there are very powerful and financially robust companies who are promoting it, and so I think it's, it's going to be around for a while still, and we need to, to keep fighting it. Mm-hmm. Now, and I think the bottom line, really, and what we focus on at the Non-GMO Project is that to whatever extent you do or don't share these various concerns, I think everyone can agree that it's a fundamental right to know what's in our food and that for people who are concerned and who do feel this is experimental and would rather not be eating it and feeding it to their families, there should be a way to avoid it and to opt out of the experiment. I agree with you. There should be a choice. And what I found, at least in my travels, is that it's becoming increasingly more difficult to find foods that have not been genetically modified or do not contain genetically modified ingredients. For example, when sugar beets were approved as being GMO, and these would be sugar beets that are, again, engineered to withstand the spraying of the herbicide Roundup or glyphosate, then a whole slew of products, about half the sugar consumed in the United States comes from sugar beets and the other half is from sugar cane. But as a consumer then, you know, you pull up to a gas station, you know, real life experience, oh gee, I think I feel like maybe having a a bag of M&M candies or some sort of chocolate candy, and you realize, oh, well, there's nothing sold here that doesn't contain GMO sugar. Or similarly, find something that doesn't have a corn or soy ingredient in it. So maybe we should talk a little bit about, I'm probably getting ahead of myself here, but maybe we should talk a little bit about where consumers are more likely to find GMOs. What are the leading crops? Yeah, for sure. And just on that last point, the thing that's truly outrageous about that is that these companies that that make products like you mentioned, they use different ingredients. They use non-GMO ingredients for the products they're making for Europe and other populations abroad because consumers in those countries have made it very clear that they do not want to eat GMOs. And so it's an outrage that we're being fed this, but at the same time, there's some hope there because it indicates that as consumers, we have a lot of power. And if we simply say we don't want to eat GMOs, companies will find a way to formulate things differently. And that's a lot of the work that we are doing at the Non-GMO Project. Um, in terms of which crops are being genetically engineered. So there are very few fresh produce items that are GMO. So that's the good news. And a lot of people, the reason I say that is, you know, a lot of people think that maybe everything in the produce aisle is GMO. And basically the only risk ingredients in the produce aisle are there is some GMO sweet corn, Hawaiian papaya. Most of that is GMO. 
and there is some zucchini and summer squash. But that's basically it. I mentioned tomato earlier in the show that was brought to market in the 90s, and it was only on the market for a brief time and then pulled. Same thing with potatoes. Those things are not at risk for being GMO anymore. But in terms of packaged food, like I said, about 80% of packaged food contains a GMO ingredient, and that's mainly because of the majority of our corn and our soy is genetically engineered, and those ingredients are used very commonly in packaged processed food. Um, There's also GMO canola, and you mentioned sugar beet. There's GMO cotton, which shows up sometimes cotton seed oil is used as a cooking oil, and also cottonseed meal is used in animal feed, so that's where that shows up as a risk. There is no GMO wheat. That's another thing that people commonly think is GMO that's not GMO. So it's actually a relatively short list, but it's crops that are used very commonly, and so basically if you're dealing with processed food, there's a high risk of contamination. Yeah, and I think, too, you know, when I buy meat, for example, or poultry, or even fish, you know, farmed fish is fed corn and soy meal. I like to go as far up the river as I can in terms of where I want to know what my animals that I'm eating have been fed as well. And I personally choose to reject those because of all the questions that we've raised. We don't know. These things haven't been adequately tested. How do I know that well, okay, I may not want to consume GMO corn or soy or canola directly, but what impact is that having on the animals that are consuming it as well? Do we know? We don't know a whole lot about that, but I can tell you. So the good news in all of this is that what the Non-GMO Project is doing is labeling foods that are produced without genetic engineering, and we require testing of every GMO risk ingredient that goes into a verified product So when you see our non-GMO project verified label on products, you can trust that it's met the most rigorous standards possible. And so that's a solution that is in effect right now for consumers. And what our standard requires in terms of verification of animal products, we do look at the feed that's being used and make sure that that's being tested and that that's non-GMO as well. Now, how many products are in the market that have this non-GMO Label. There are about 3,000 products verified so far, and on our website, you can search a list of all of the verified products. We have a, a shopping guide format where you can search by category, so if you want to look at baby food or breakfast foods and cereals and things like that, you can look in an individual category and see the products that are verified, or you can also search by company. And then we also have a tool so that if one of your favorite products isn't listed and you'd like to send a message to the manufacturer and ask them to be part of the project, there's a way to do that on our website that's really quick and easy. So that really empowers people to help shape the food supply in the way that they want it to be. I think that's excellent advice. You know, I have called companies in the past and said, I'd love to buy your product, but it contains GMO sugar, for example. And so until that changes, I certainly don't want to eat it. I've also called infant formula companies because I think parents might be a little alarmed to know that GMO corn or soy is included in infant formula products. And if you call the company, there's the person at the end of the phone who's clearly reading from their employee handbook 
that these products have been found to be safe by the FDA without really understanding how they got moved through and received that safety approval. So it's a buyer beware market, and I think that any sort of label, and I love the way you've got this third-party independent certification. I always tell consumers that that's really the way to go. You want a third-party independent reviewer. Well, and the other thing is, I mean, it's so great to hear that you've made those phone calls yourself, and I really encourage people to do that or fill out our form on our website, as I described, because it makes a big difference. We often see that a company only needs a few phone calls, and it really gets their attention, and they realize this is something that people are looking for. It's actually, consumers already are really expressing their preference for non-GMO, and actually, Non-GMO Project Verified is now the fastest-growing label claim in the natural food sector and and one of the fastest in the the food industry at large. So the consumer voice is already being heard, but to the extent that we can increasingly ask our favorite food companies to make a non-GMO commitment, it really has a powerful impact. Yeah, I was just reading the Hartman Trend Report for the new year for 2012, and one of the issues they point to is this idea that consumers want non-GMO food increasingly more so. And I want to let our listeners know you've got a terrific website. You've got terrific resources and the toolkit for things that consumers can do. And so just to let our listeners know that that website is non-gmoproject.org. We've got a few minutes, and before I launch into something else, I want to make sure that I give you a chance to talk about anything that I may not have brought up. I think we've covered a lot of the important stuff. I mean, the main thing that I want to get across is just that our goal is to empower consumers. And again, we just really believe that everyone has a right to know what is in your food and that you shouldn't have to be part of the GMO experiment if you don't want to. So I would encourage people to just look at our website and search through the list of verified products submit product enrollment requests if you have favorite products that aren't there and just engage because it really does make a big difference. And if you feel passionate about this issue and want to hear more, um, we're very active on Facebook and on Twitter. We post almost every day, usually a few times a day. And so if folks are using those tools and want to really stay in the loop on everything that's happening with GMO and non-GMO, those are really good resources too. And I love the way you also have updates on labeling issues. The Just Label It campaign has already generated over 400,000 signatures on a petition urging the FDA to mandate GMO labeling. Hallelujah. And people can learn more about that at the Just Label It. You can Google Just Label It or go to justlabelit.org to find out more about that campaign. And I'm also happy to report, I learned this from your website, that the California Right to Know Act will be on the ballot in November, also requiring GMO labeling. Yes, it's important to understand that because this is such a big problem, we need many ways to address it. And so, you know, in addition to the things you mentioned, there's really important litigation being done by the Center for Food Safety, and then these mandatory labeling efforts are a really good way to raise awareness. And definitely, if people haven't signed the petition to the FDA, just go to justlabelit.org, and it just takes a minute. A big part of the goal there is to show Washington, D.C., that Americans care about this. And this, I think, will be 
the biggest petition we've ever seen just to show them how many signatures we can get, and we're aiming for a million. I think the close of comments is in April. And then in terms of the California ballot initiative, efforts to get mandatory labeling at a federal level have not been successful, and so this is the strategy to go to a state level. And, of course, California has the biggest population, and it's very likely that if mandatory labeling passes there, it will have a positive impact in the rest of the country as well. Well, Megan, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. We've been speaking with Megan Westgate. She is the executive director of the Non-GMO Project, and I encourage you to go to her excellent website for more information. That's nongmoproject.org. In closing, I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Megan, thank you so much for this excellent work. Thank you. Thank you.